As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you, Don, for a great introduction. First, when he started, I thought I got a little bit confused on his introduction. He was talking about another mutual friend of ours. I thought he was talking about me, and I was sitting there and said, no, I was already fired when you <laughs> when we met. <laughs> so I had gone through that. It's good to be here. It's good to see this great assembly and to have heard the wonderful messages that I've heard thus far, to be in the presence of these great minds that I read from and study from all the time, and to have a have an opportunity to come and share with you just a few thoughts from my studies. Don said that this will probably be challenging, I think more so to me than to you. Because uh, in this lesson, I'm going to uh, share some concepts that uh, are a challenge to me that I don't see us necessarily deal with that much, at least uh, directly. And at the same time, uh, I know that you know many of these guys have uh, gone far beyond where I am in some of these studies. So we're going to talk about... 2 Corinthians a little bit, a little bit about 1 Corinthians, and Jack and I were back there kidding, and he said that, um, I guess he, we were kind of looking over at each other's computers and looking at what we had up on the screen, and we both had 2 Corinthians up, and he said, he said, are you teaching on 2 Corinthians? He said, I am too. He says, and I'm up first. <laughs> I said, well, you go on, I'll clean up your mess. <laughs> I guess he didn't know. That's why Don put him up before me. <laughs> but no, I only said that for a joke. It's really not true. <laughs> no, he is an awesome thinker, and uh, his studies on 1 Corinthians have been those that, uh, from the very first time I heard them, I thought they were just absolutely killer presentations, and I encouraged him to make those available as far and as widely as he possibly could, because no one... Uh, had put together in such concise and organized fashion the kind of presentation that Jack had put together on 1 Corinthians 15, and so uh, I, I would hope that he continues to share that information. Unfortunately, mine are not like that, but anyway, we're going to get started. Now, I had originally uh, thought to really delve more into the body and talking about 2 Corinthians 5. I do believe that there is quite a bit of information there. We'll talk about some things, but we'll kind of be in and out of some concepts, and I hope all of this kind of comes together 
during the course of, of my talk. In addition, uh, we may get through very early, so if you want an early break, you know, just uh, sit around for a few minutes and you might be checking out here pretty early. Now, something's got out of order already. Don't even know how they got there. I think I've rearranged my presentation. Done. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I probably have to go in that order to <laughs> to clean up Jack's. <laughs> but I think this is I think this is where I start. Okay, I must have just missed missed one. Or did I? No, I did not. All right. Well, I tell you what. We're really going to have to have to take this. Uh, let's start right here. This is where I want to start, and I'll just back up. The resurrection raises questions about immortality. Would you agree with that? Uh, both texts on the subject, when we talk about 1 Corinthians 15 and when we talk about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're dealing with passages that introduce the concept, or at least talk about the concept of immortality. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, this mortal must put on what? Immortality. When this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. But when we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4, the text says that mortality might be swallowed up of life. So we have these two passages that talk about mortality, and yet what I've noticed when I look at some of the writings of the scholars and the expositors, they tend to go into two different directions on 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, one of the points I'd like to make is that God alone is inherently immortal. According to 1 Timothy 6 and verse 14. And as a result, I believe that we should understand that man, created as man, does not possess immortality. He can only acquire immortality from God. And thus, we do not have man created as an immortal being in terms of what I understand immortality to discuss. Now, there are those who have a different concept of immortality than I have, and I understand that. Uh, it is an attribute of God, and attributes of God can be shared by man without man becoming God, and therefore man can share or participate in immortality without becoming a divine being himself. Now, God is love. I'm sure we all agree with that. And man shares in God's attribute of love, but man does not become God simply because he can share in that attribute. And I believe the same thing is true for immortality. Another point about immortality is that it is not a birthright. It is not our natural birthright. Adam was not, in my judgment, immortal. He did not possess immortality because he was not God. If God alone has immortality, then how could Adam be created or made with immortality? He was not an immortal being from the beginning. And therefore, we could not derive or inherit immortality from or through the first Adam. 
And so it's not a birthright. Immortality, in my understanding, is a gift from God. The same is true of resurrection. Now, Adam had the potential to possess immortality as a mortal man. And I think that's a very important point. He had the potential to possess immortality. Now, there are people who uh, do not believe that it is possible to have immortality as mortals. And so I raise that issue. Remember, the text says, Now lest he put forth his hand and eat of the tree of life and do what? And live forever. Genesis 3 and verse 22. However, what prevented Adam from eating of the tree of life and possessing immortality? It was God who forbade him. He did not allow him to access the tree of life. But it was not because it was impossible for Adam as a man, for him as a being, to have immortality. And I think that's important when we discuss the subject of resurrection. Now, when we talk about resurrection and immortality, we have to see the uh, continuity of it. I think someone has already said that the Bible, uh, one word, I think it was Jack's lesson, he said the Bible is about one word, that's resurrection. Immortality is the same. But in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse uh, verse 53, we've already talked about it, where it says mortal This mortal has put on immortality. And I was looking at that and something, you know, the thought dawned on me that he's he's saying this mortal must put on immortality. Now, even though I'm talking about this, I want you to understand that as we get further into 2 Corinthians 5, uh, I I do not want you to understand, rather, that uh, I'm just focused on man as an individual and, and man as body. But just look at these concepts of what they are for right now. And then again, he says that mortality might be swallowed up uh, as life. Now, we have a maxim that says things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. So let's consider this. If mortality or the putting on of immortality swallows up death, then immortality is life. Does that make sense? And that's what 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says. If mortality is swallowed up of life, then life is immortality. And if putting on immortality equals life, then these statements are parallel. And so thus, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 2 Corinthians 5, 4 speak of the same thing. And I still have a tendency to believe that my presentation is out of order. Now, (laughs) but that's okay. If you can understand this one, it's really going to be good. (laughs) Now, so we have this, this thought Because what I was really trying to uh, convey there was that resurrection and immortality are the same. So let's just go back there for a moment. The swallowing up of death, of course, is resurrection. And so uh, in those two concepts, you have immortality and you have life, and therefore resurrection and immortality have to be the same thing. And so in Pauline thought, resurrection and immortality are inseparable and complementary ideas. Now there was a a writing that uh, uh, Mary Harris did, I think it was about eight uh, theses that he had done, a doctoral thesis, and he wrote on resurrection and immortality, and, and uh, he acknowledged that point. 
Now, sometimes people get in the uh, get the idea that man has an immortal soul. And so I thought it necessary to talk a little bit about the soul of man. Uh, man's soul does survive the body in death, at least in my understanding it does. But the Bible says that God is not the God of the dead. We also learn from Matthew 10 and verse 28 that the soul is punishable in death, that is, uh, by the second death, Matthew 10, 28. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Revelation 20 and verse 14. Uh, Matthew 10, 28 says, Fear him who can destroy both body and soul. Now, we can either acknowledge that the soul can be destroyed or that at least the soul can be punished. And therefore, uh, we acknowledge that there is something that uh, at least extends beyond the physical death of man. However, in saying that, I do not believe that what the Bible is saying is that the soul is immortal. There are those who believe that there is a natural immortality of man. Now, the soul is not immortal, for immortality is put on through resurrection. So if those are equivalent, and that's one of the reasons I was covering that, if they are equivalent, then how could a soul be immortal prior to its resurrection? Doesn't make sense to me. The Bible knows nothing of the platonic view of the immortality of the soul. And even though there is continued existence of man beyond death, and that is affirmed, if not for all, at least it's affirmed for the righteous. Because once again, God is not the God of whom? Of the dead, but of whom? Of the righteous. And the Bible uh, mentions that in Matthew 23 as an argument to demonstrate that God is the God of the living. Yet, the pre-parousia, post-mortem state of the righteous, or in that state, they did not have immortality. Jack just got through talking about the resurrection of the dead ones in 1 Corinthians 15. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 and 40, the Bible says, These all died in faith, not having received the what? The premise, God having provided some better thing for us that they, apart from us, should not be made perfect. So even though they were considered as those who were righteous or those who were worthy, they did not have what constituted resurrection. And therefore, if resurrection and immortality are equated in Scripture, they did not have immortality. Yet, I don't think any of us, or at least I hope not, would affirm the continued existence of the righteous. And so I don't personally identify 
immortality with non-ending existence or the continued existence of man uh, in his uh, life after death. And so wherever you want to stand on that in terms of the wicked, it's really not of consequence to me. It is simply the fact that uh, when we talk about immortality, we're talking about something other than man's continued existence. And so therefore, it is not the inerrant right of righteous souls beyond death in the sense that they have it apart from it being conveyed by God. Now, uh, Bible expositors create a fork in the road to resurrection. Path number one. Uh, immortality or resurrection occurs at Christ's parousia, which is allegedly future. And, of course, from the standpoint of where we read uh, our Bibles, from a historical point of view or the first century point of view, it was future then. But uh, in today's uh, modern thinking and, and uh, eschatological thinking, for the majority of people, of course, it is still allegedly future. And when we read a lot of the scholars and a lot of the commentators, we read about, uh, you know, the future uh, coming of the Lord. And so uh, this is the position that is taken. However, path number two, when we view these passages, is that immortality and resurrection occurs at physical death, which is in the past and is ongoing in the present. And, of course, even among our eschatological ranks, We have those who affirm the immortality at death, or or they they affirm immortality of the body. That is, uh, we receive a spiritual body in death, and uh, it becomes uh, a part of a a view in in resurrection that... uh, Runs counter, I believe, to some of the uh, some of the points that are being made in Scripture, and so uh, let's examine this a little bit further. Now, when we look at that, and we have these scholars going off in two different directions. Here's one where we have resurrection at the parousia. We have another where we have resurrection in uh, at death, and these two views come from reading First Corinthians 15 and Second Corinthians chapter five. Now, the reason I had those first two uh, passages up there, I'm not going to roll all the way back there now, but I had those two uh, PowerPoints up earlier. They should have come right after this one, or right before. And that is, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians after he wrote 1 Corinthians. That makes sense, doesn't it? And yet we see that when we discuss 1 Corinthians 15, we tend to make it the end of all ends when it comes down to studying resurrection. And there's nothing wrong necessarily with that because, you know, 1 Corinthians teaches what it teaches. But I want you to just consider this for a moment. Let's talk about 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Let's talk about 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Now, 1 Thessalonians was written before 2 Thessalonians, wasn't it? And in chapter 4, Paul wrote concerning the resurrection. And by the way, it's interesting that when the first century church read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, they came away from it with a sense and a concept of imminence. So much so that they thought the event had already occurred. 
Why is it when people today read it, they get an idea of non-eminence? That's rather strange to me. So somebody's reading the chapter wrong, but they got a, a very strong or heightened sense of eminence when they read the chapter. But apparently there were some misunderstandings in First Corinthians, or rather in First Thessalonians chapter 4, that Paul wrote later to clarify. Now, just having said that, would that mean that Second Thessalonians would be a, at least uh, somewhat valuable in understanding First Corinthians? Or re, I keep saying First Corinthians, but First Thessalonians chapter four. Does that make sense? Definitely, it does. It was written later. It was written by the same apostle. It was written to the same church about the same issue, and therefore adds something to at least a couple of texts that might have been a bit obscure. Well, let's do the same thing with 1 Peter. We have some writings in 1 Peter. And uh, we look at 2 Peter. And Peter wrote some things in 2 Peter to remind his readers of what he had said in the first epistle. It's written later. It's written to the same people. And therefore offers some clarification of some of the things that he wrote. And so with that premise or logic in mind, I guess I should say, then it makes sense that when Paul writes 2 Corinthians 5, he is clarifying something that may or might have been misunderstood in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. At least I kind of see it that way. And yet, sometimes it's very difficult to find uh, people who will approach 2 Corinthians 5 as supporting information for, for 1 Corinthians 15, rather than moving off into a total different direction. Now, if we do focus on resurrection at the parousia from 1 Corinthians 15 and from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and then change horses and say that 2 Corinthians 5 deals with resurrection at death, at physical death, then we have a resurrection house that's divided against itself. And a house divided against itself cannot what? Cannot stand. And so, in so doing, here's what the scholars tell us, that Paul abandons Paul. In other words, in his first writing, in 1 Corinthians 15, and in his earlier writing, like 1 Thessalonians 4, he was adamant about the resurrection occurring at the parousia. But in 2 Corinthians 5, his view shifted, and now resurrection takes place at death. Well, let's look at uh, some of the reasons why, uh, why they say that. Now, there's a couple of statements. In general terms, now just watch, this is some of the proof of how these scholars uh, get off into this path. In general terms, immortality relates to the incorruptibility and deathlessness of the post-mortem state of the deceased, as they continue their existence. And uh, therefore, it equals resurrection or immortality at death. So let's just think about that for a moment. If we assume a future return of Christ, and we also assume that resurrection is speaking of the physical body, then upon death, what do we get? We get resurrection, don't we? At death. 
we get immortality at death. So then, what's the need for the parousia when it comes down to resurrection? Now, to me, that's a huge problem in the uh, futuristic view of eschatology. Now, you may not hear them talk about it much, but I don't know if you, you all may recall um, Gus Nichols' teaching suggested that man receives his body at death. And yet, he debated with Max King that resurrection was future, that the end time was future. So we had this dichotomized point of view on resurrection. He went off in two directions in terms of what he actually believed and what he taught, and somehow couldn't see the contradiction. So this is a this is a problem that I you know I think it's important for us to see how 2 Corinthians 5 clears this up. Now, when does resurrection occur? If the resurrection of the individual occurs at the moment as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. moment of his death, then immortality may be said to be gained at death. But does resurrection happen at the end of time, that is the alleged end of time, or immediately upon death? So let's look at some conclusions that they say. Therefore, it is probable probable that the resurrection in verse 8 to taking up residence with the Lord, and this is directly from 2 Corinthians 5, and I'm going to try to touch on that just a little bit uh, before we're done. Uh, therefore, it is probable that the re- reference in verse 8 to taking up residence with the Lord, so far from implying disembodiment, conceals a reference to investiture with the spiritual body. And such an investiture 
which I insert to mean a clothing upon, must occur at death. For verse 6, this is out of 2 Corinthians 5, implies that as soon as residence in the physical embodiment ceases, so also does absence from the Lord. Now, you've got a couple of things going on here. On the one hand, they're saying it happens at death, but they're also saying that that's when absence of the Lord ceases as well. The text is teaching the same thing that 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 teaches, and that is that resurrection occurs at the parousia. But let's uh, look at the text a little bit more carefully. Now, if you will, turn to 2 Corinthians 5, and let's just read a few of the verses. Beginning at verse 1, Paul says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that what? Mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we always are confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, let's focus on this idea of man receiving his body at death, especially as it relates to 2 Corinthians 5. Now, look at what the text says. Their argument is that upon death, and immediately upon death, man receives this post-mortem state of immortality. But what the scripture is saying is that they were not going to experience a post-mortem state. Now watch in verse 3. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now what does the state of nakedness refer to? It is an out-of-body state. It is a post-mortem state. So if we're talking about physical resurrection here, nakedness would be when they exit the physical body. Does that make sense? According to the text. It may not make sense to you in terms of my logic about it. But I believe that's exactly what Paul is saying in terms of his language. It's where we start interpreting that presents the problem. He says, if indeed having been clothed. Now, how many of you have been clothed today? How many of you are naked? Not a single one of you, because you have been what? You have been clothed. Now, this is what Paul said. If indeed having been clothed, 
we shall not be found naked. Eschatological resurrection in the New Testament knows nothing about a state of nakedness in terms of the experience of the church. And thus, a futuristic resurrection where man exits his body and awakes from a hole in the ground for Christ to come and give him another one is contrary to the text. Now, I'm saying this also to say that there is no distinction between what Paul is teaching in 2 Corinthians 5 and what he's teaching in 1 Corinthians 15. They are identical. They're both the same. And I know it takes a bit of gymnastics to weave through the uh, grammatical verb tenses of 1 Corinthians 15, because I've done it. It's one of the things that really put me on course of understanding what he was saying there. But the points are the same. Now watch in the next verse. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. What's unclothed? Naked. But look at the term that he uses. But further clothed. Now I know this is not the time of the year that we tend to want to be further clothed as far as our natural clothing, but if it were about 10 degrees below zero out there and we were wearing the clothes that we have on, we certainly could see ourselves being what? Further clothed. Putting on more clothing over the existing clothing, correct? Well, that's the idea of the word that's used in the text. Paul is not talking about a state or a condition where he sheds clothing, and becomes naked in the sense of a physical body, no longer having any, uh, no longer being in the physical body state. He's talking about a condition where he is in one state and he pulls on over him other clothing that causes him to be further clothed. And in that sense, the old state is done away. That mortality might be swallowed up of life. When mortality puts on immortality. And you know, I don't know, I could be splitting hairs here. But just think about that concept, that mortality puts on immortality. He didn't say that the naked state puts on immortality, did he? So that's, you know, a concept to think about. Now, so Houston, we have a problem. If immortality and resurrection in 2 Corinthians 5, or not if, but it does, anticipates it eliminates the post-mortem state. Whatever that is, and I think it should be clear, at least in my mind it's clear, that you will have difficulty making it a physical body. And if you make it a physical body, if, 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 if it's difficult, excuse me, in making it a physical body from this language, which to me seems very clear, in 2 Corinthians 5, then how can we force that down in the first, in the first Corinthians 15? It won't work. And so he properly understood man cannot and does not enter the post-mortem state. It doesn't matter which way you slice the cake. It doesn't happen.
That is, he does not die in the scenario that Paul places before us. Because mortality is swallowed up of what? Of life. Now, let me delve into 1 Corinthians 15 for just a moment. And I'm going to come back because I just don't have time. I'm going to come back and pull more together in terms of 2 Corinthians, but I wanted to get some of these concepts out before you first. Now he says, and as we have born, would you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 49 for a moment. And as we have born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, if you're going to deal with these verb tenses, we got some problems here. Because this is clearly, let's just stay with the English for just a moment. This is clearly past perfect tense, is it not? As we have born. Now, if Paul is talking about the state of resurrection body, or the state of the resurrection, how could they be in a state of having born the image of the earthy? And yet, at the same time, be looking forward to bearing, which is future, shall bear the image of the heavenly man. So where are they? Are they in that bodiless state? Are they in a state of nakedness? But that's generally what's affirmed in 1 Corinthians 15. But see, the point is, this happened before they died physically. Is that making sense to you? It's, it's really quiet in here. I don't even need the paper rattling anymore. <laughs> do, you, do you understand what I just said? As we have borne the image of the earthy. Let's just, to make it clear, let's say that's the physical body as most people want to do. Well, if it's past tense, and that's the tense of the verb there, but I want you to consider something because the error is it's not fully passed in all uh, all of its examples, but just just focus on that for just a moment. They are at a point where they have done and where they are looking forward to do. So if it's past tense and having borne the image of the earthy, and future tense shall bear the image of the heavenly. See, it doesn't work with a physical body. This is my whole point. Whether you accept it, understand it, that clear. It doesn't work with the physical body. But both 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 make it very clear that they are in a state of transition. Now, let's talk about the dying of the Lord Jesus. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 14. And I know I've skipped about because I I really need to touch on this idea, and I'm going to talk more about that in the second lesson, but... Uh, prior to going to 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll, we'll try to do this all at once as we uh, begin to wrap up here, let's just note in 2 Corinthians 5 um, and verse 5, now after Paul talks about being unclothed, he says we don't desire to be unclothed. That's a state that we do not choose to have. That is a condition that we do not want. And God gave them something to prevent that condition. What did he give them? He gave them the Holy Spirit to prevent a state of nakedness. He said, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given to us the earnest of the Spirit, or given to us the Spirit as a guarantee. 
Well, let me ask you. Did he give that same spirit in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, of course he did. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, the Bible will tell you that God had raised up the Lord Jesus and will also raise us up by his what? By his power. And we'll have a lot to say about the Holy Spirit and resurrection in the, in the next lesson. But there's the idea of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 15 that's given to prevent nakedness. The out of the body experience. That's why when Paul introduces the chapter, he says, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. He saw no discontinuity, no break between the earthly house and the heavenly house. There was no break. And the reason there was no break was because the Spirit was given to effect the transition from the one to the other. What have I done here? All right, there we go. Now, let's, uh, in the last couple of minutes we have, we'll try to get through this very quickly. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 10. Paul said, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. Now here's a question for you. Was Paul and his brothers, his Jewish brethren, particularly the apostles, and, and were they dying while the rest of the church was living? Were they mortal while the rest of the church was experiencing immortality? How could you have one group dying and the other group living? If we're in a context of physicality, it's not going to work. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Why was death working in them? Because they were bearing about the dying of the Lord Jesus. Jesus was born under the law, and he died to the law. Paul was a Jew. Sam did a very good job of talking about the transition from the old eon to the new eon. And hence, here were the apostles dying to that old eon and rising to the new. And at the same time, of course, uh, Gentiles who were not brought into that were experiencing the life of the new age. They didn't have to die to the old because they were not in it, and God did not allow them to come into it. And so death was working in the apostles to the earthly house, but life was working in the Gentiles 
to the heavenly house. That's not to say that Paul wasn't in the heavenly house, but you have to understand what's going on here from a covenantal perspective. And that I tend to make, I, I plan to make very clear uh, later on. And so he says, For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be made manifest, or may, or may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now what Paul was saying was that they wanted to experience the life of Jesus, which was immortality, in their mortal flesh. They were not wanting to experience a state of death. And that's what 2 Corinthians is demonstrating to us. That's what 2 Corinthians is is showing us that we have this transition. Now let's uh, move on through 2 Corinthians and talk just a little bit about the correlation between this text and the parousia because uh, some kind of get derailed as they move through the chapter. Now, when we go on to verse 6, he says, So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, it's assumed that we're talking about a physical body, but the transition here is from house to the body. It's not a transition from the earthly house to a physical body. But the Bible talks about a covenantal body. Uh, for example, in Jude 9, the Bible talks about the dispute that Michael and the devil had with the body of whom? The body of Moses. Now, as I recall, you find that dispute in Zechariah chapter 3. Long after Moses, the individual, had died. And Jude, commenting on that point, says that they were disputing about the body of Moses. Now, I don't have time to go into what that was all about, but I'm sure you recall that this was where Satan was trying to accuse Israel and condemn them because they were unclean. And God says, wait, I'm not finished with them yet. Looking forward to the time in which they were going to be redeemed. And so we have the body of Moses as a corporate body, and you have the body of Christ as a corporate body. And so when they're using body, when Paul is using body in 2 Corinthians 5, he's not talking about man's physical body, he's keeping with the same thread of thought all the way through in talking about the body of Moses. And so when he says, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. That means that the parousia has not yet occurred. And so he says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Now faith, in my understanding here, doesn't mean that they're not walking by the word of God. It simply meant that what they were looking forward to in terms of their hope being realized, consummated, had not yet occurred. It's the same idea of Romans chapter 8 and verse 25. It's like Hebrews 11 says. Faith is the substance of things what? Hoped for the evidence or the conviction of things not seen or realized that have not yet come to fruition. And so Paul asked the question, why does a man hope for that which he already has? But if he has not received it, then he says, with eager expectation, we wait for it. And what were they waiting for? The redemption of the body, resurrection. And thus, 
He says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. They were waiting to be fully delivered from that old covenant body so they could experience the unburdened, unshackled existence in the new covenant body. Sam talked about that when he talked about Hebrews 11. And so he says, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body. Paul wasn't saying, now just think about that in terms of how he contradicts the earlier passage if we're going to make it physical. He wasn't saying that I want to be out of my physical body, because if that were the case, that's the same as desiring nakedness. But he was saying, I want to be out from this body of death, this body of Judaism, fully out. I want that to be consummated so that I could experience life in Christ, and uh, fully without that. And then he says, and to be present with the Lord. Well, that is the parousia. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body. According to what he has done. That's not a shift or a transition from body in the text. That's the same body that he was talking about all the way through the text. And that refers to that earthly house, that building that would be destroyed and that would be overcome and overshadowed by the heavenly house, which was from heaven. And so as we look at 2 Corinthians 5, and we see uh, the, the language that Paul used in terms of nakedness, in terms of immortality, in terms of the body, he is demonstrating to us that this cannot be a reference to man's physical body. It is not a reference to a state of nakedness in death. It is not a reference to immortality of the soul. It is a reference to immortality that comes as a result of obedience to God, and it corresponds both in time and in nature. With 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, and all the passages harmonized, we don't have to take two directions, going one at death, one at the parousia, saying Paul abandoned his theology. But his, his theology is consistent all the way through, and therefore refers to life in the new covenant of the young. Thank you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.